Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about new energy opportunities with the help of special guest Jacob Corviday of Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey everyone out there, this is Tim Fowler and thanks for tuning in to the Tim Fowler Show. So a while back we did a podcast on some of the advances in green energy savings uh, with a gentleman from Wisconsin. And uh, I told everybody that I was going to be going to a conference up there in February on energy conservation. I went to the conference. It was a great time. And I got to meet our guest for today uh, while we were there. As part of that intro to that podcast, I mentioned that For most of my life, when I was building, energy conservation has really been transforming. When I first started out, we were just getting into spray foam. Uh, I knew a remodeler in the Washington, D.C. area that actually moved. And I I believe it was actually to Boulder uh, to start working on uh, building green. I remember visiting California, and I believe it was Alameda County was really big pioneers in separating out debris from jobs. And so, you know, going green has been out there for a while. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is what's coming next? What's on the horizon? What are we looking for that um, that we need to be paying attention to as opposed to just sort of reacting to things? And so, Again, going to the 4B conference in Wisconsin just sent my my head spinning one more time about like, oh my goodness, I can't believe what we're talking about here. So I wanted to get uh, Jacob on. He was one of our uh, speakers at the conference. He facilitated some conversation. And I just thought, you know what? Even though I don't know very much about this, I really wanted to get somebody on and start talking about it. So... What's up with you on this, Steve? I know we've had a little conversation about our past lives with it, but uh, what's your experience with like the next best thing in the energy world? Yeah, you know, I follow a lot of stuff on online, on Instagram, and, and try to keep up the best I can. So I'll be really excited to talk to Jacob. I follow, you know, a couple building science um, hashtags and whatnot on Instagram, but uh, yeah, I'm just fascinated with how fast it's all moving and <laughs> and what the future can look like. So, because yeah. I think we get certain houses now that are pretty darn tight, and when you look at the efficiencies and and changing over to electric like that, to me, it's it's just very exciting stuff. So. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's get started. So Jacob is a principal in the buildings program at Rocky Mountain Institute, also known as RMI, where he leads the Residential Energy Plus Initiative. After nearly two decades of work in sustainable community development in Michigan, he now works from RMI's Boulder, Colorado office. 
He is also a co-author of the Carbon City Carbon Free City Handbook and the Carbon Free Regions Handbook, two guides to help local governments across the world take action faster, as well as reports to support contractors and builders. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. This is really exciting. So give us a little more information about the company you're with and and what the focus is that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, well, it's definitely a bigger context, uh, even than just what we'll talk about today, even though that's a pretty big topic. So Rocky Mountain Institute is a not-for-profit organization. We've been around uh, 37 years, just recently celebrated a birthday there. Uh, We are co-founded by um, our co-founder, Amory Lovins, is very well known in the energy field for having uh, talked about different ways we could be approaching energy uh, across the globe for a while. And the whole organization's purpose is to is to help drive the global transformation towards a clean, prosperous, and secure energy future uh, for all of us. And uh, we do that through market-driven approaches and uh, are known for doing not only technical and economic analyses of these things to really cut through to what actually works and what doesn't work and what makes sense, uh, in a practical way, uh, but we also do a lot of uh, facilitating very diverse groups of stakeholders. We do a lot of whole systems thinking to really try to understand these complex issues and figure out what's the right way to intervene, what's the right way to help us all thread through that needle to get to that clean, prosperous, and secure energy future we'd all like to see. So we've got I, offices all over the place. We're like global now. We started in Colorado, but we're in D.C., New York. Uh, Oakland, Beijing, Delhi, India, uh, and uh, quite a few other places as well. So in the intro that Steve uh, gave us, the the carbon-free thing came up. And uh, I just like, again, when you're talking about Washington, D.C., you're talking about China, you know, it's like, that must be a real challenge to think in terms of those. I mean, Boulder, Colorado is pretty subtle in terms of carbon use than some of these bigger cities. So just, I don't know, I'm just shooting from the hip here. Give us a little bit about the challenges that you face in those big urban environments. Yeah, well, I mean, the truth of the matter is the big urban environments are facing problems in a very real daily way around uh around extreme weather events, right? Uh, I realize that talking about carbon or climate issues is sometimes a divisive uh, topic, uh, but no one in these settings is disputing the fact that we're getting more and more extreme weather events and the cities have uh, real challenges in dealing with that, whether it's flooding, extreme heat, drought, extreme cold bursts like the polar vortex, whatever that might be, and really trying to figure out how are we going to tackle this. And the good news is um, preparing for those things and making our communities more Uh, more adaptable and uh, able to better withstand those extreme weather events is also the same things you'd have to do that you want to help curb carbon impacts as well. And so uh, the two actually dovetail pretty nicely and they're helping solve very practical problems while also creating opportunities for economic development. So you mentioned that you're trying to approach this from a, I don't remember exactly what the word you use, but like a holistic approach. Can you, can you walk us through what that looks like in a in the the process i mean so from a building perspective i build the foundation i put in the floors i put in the walls it's like for me that's a step-by-step kind of thing so it's hard for me to really get my head wrapped around how would you even think about that from a holistic perspective 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, buildings provide a great example for this and sort of how we talk about building science in the sense that um, getting that whole perspective is about looking at how all these different complex pieces that sometimes people think are independent actually interact and have important impacts on each other. I think the classic example is back in the 80s after the energy crisis in the 70s, people started building really tight houses, right? Uh, and we got these tight houses that didn't breathe and then actually had all these other problems, right? We started getting indoor mold problems and contaminants and all this sort of thing. And so now, so then some people backed off and said, well, we shouldn't build tight houses. Well, that's not really the right answer either, right? And so <laughs> now it's pretty well understood in the industry, right? This whole idea, you got to build tight, but ventilate right, right? And, yep. uh, and it's understanding that these, you know, you can't just put in a furnace without understanding how well insulated the house is, right? You want to right size the furnace. You don't want to put in, just use a standard rule of thumb. And so it's understanding how these things relate to each other. But this is true as well when we start talking about things like, uh, you know, much bigger topics like, well, what is, you know, what's going on in the utilities have to do with what I'm doing in my building business, you know, and these things, you, they ripple out and they have impacts coming back to us. And it's about trying to understand those pieces that might not be right in front of our noses. So let's just jump right into like, what are some of the things that are changing for us along these lines? How, where, where are we going? What's the horizon? What's on the horizon for us in terms of energy and maybe some things that all of us need to be thinking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's changing fast. It's crazy out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and especially, I think, you know, things have been changing, as you said, in the building industry, you know, people have been adapting more, uh, adapting and adopting more of these, um, you know, energy efficiency techniques, green buildings been around a long time now. Most yeah. people are roughly familiar with it. And, um, but there's other changes that I think are going to have this impact in a big way soon. And one of the big ones is what's happening with utilities. Uh, for those who haven't, you know, been looking at this closely, may not realize utilities are undergoing massive disruption right now. Uh, the whole standard utility model is up in the air. It's sort of the wild west out there. PG&E, for example, uh, it just filed for bankruptcy. It's probably one of the first sort of climate change related bankruptcies we've seen in the country so far um, following the forest fires. And, right. um, and solar, the price of solar has come down so fast faster than almost anyone predicted. It's come down so fast that it's cost competitive now for utilities to be putting in solar instead of coal. We're seeing coal plants shut down all over the place. But not only utilities putting in solar, but individual people and individual businesses are putting in solar, which means suddenly the utility is saying, wait a minute, there's all these other people producing energy now. How do we respond to that? What does our business model even look like in the future? And lots of people exploring lots of different things. It's, it's, really, it's really pretty wild. What that has to do with buildings, however, is that as a result of all those changes, utilities are changing what they do, and that's going to affect how buildings work in the future. And that's one of the biggest drivers, I think, that's coming very near down the horizon. So just a simple example of that is more and more utilities are now starting to move towards time of use rates. Instead of just a standard electricity rate, for example, it's like, well, when do you use that electricity? Because they want to incentivize people to use it at certain times and not at other times. Because they've got certain times where they've got a ton of power coming on from the grid because everyone's producing solar, for example, and other times where there's not as much and they have to crank up an older natural gas uh, plant or something which uh, costs more to deliver, and they're trying to figure out how to balance all that out. The impact that has for buildings is that buildings that are more efficient can weather that much more easily because their energy uses are just much lower. The ones that are producing power can play into that and have some control. The, the buildings that have storage 
and storage costs, by the way, are now coming down just as dramatically as solar costs were. They're still sort of high now, but they're they're dropping like mad. All of that is going to lean towards this future where we actually have buildings that are storing energy, they're providing energy to the utility, not just taking energy from the utility. And as a result, they're not just sending money to the utility, the utility is sending money back to them, or at least credit or whatever that might be, in this much more complicated way that can be a real economic opportunity for those building owners if they've got the right building, if the building is built efficiently to start with and can weather those things. Um, so I think that's a big, big piece. So this is all kind of mind blowing to me. It's it's just one of those things. I feel like I need a seminar every couple of weeks just to stay up with with what's going on. Uh, I, I think at the conference, one of the big things that came out was that some of these utilities are actually uh, investing heavily in solar themselves. Yep. And then and maybe so speak a little bit about that and then maybe about uh I think what I heard right was that in some ways they're trying to get solar onto homes as part of kind of like a solar farm. So it isn't really just a house using that power, but they have solar across a whole community. And then that becomes like a farm for the utility. Yeah. That, did I get that right? Yeah, no, it's true. There's a there's a wide range of different things. Like I said, it's sort of the Wild West. There's all sorts of different models emerging. So sometimes it is true that utilities are investing more and more in solar and wind and other renewable energy sources because the price point is there, right? It, it makes sense. Uh, we've got numerous utilities all over the place committing to this. Excel Energy is now committed to 100% clean energy by 2050. Uh, but they're known as sort of a leader in this area. Less obvious utilities like NIPSCO in Indiana or Consumers Energy in Michigan are all saying, uh, look, we're going to have these dramatic shifts in how we produce energy. How they do that varies, right? So sometimes it is like we're just going to build a giant solar array somewhere, and same as we used to have a coal plant here, we now have a giant solar plant here, and it produces power. But they are also looking at these distributed uh, energy resources, as we call them. Okay. Uh, so, so we might have different neighborhoods that have a different like community solar farm type thing, or uh, even individual households or individual businesses. And, uh, and the utility is increasingly moving to a space where it can have a role in just managing where all that energy is coming from and going to, rather than even being the owner necessarily of the, of the solar production. So is, are there any predictions of how this is going to curb oil and gas use? I, I'm, I'm just, again, just sort of shooting from the hip here. I'm just kind of wondering, like, do you guys have some kind of estimate long-term about for example, we predict that within the next 15 years, oil and gas consumption is going to drop this amount or, or something like that. Is there anything like that out there? Yeah, there are, there are predictions out there. What's interesting is that uh, you know, a lot of the well-meaning, um, you know, real standard institutions in the energy world put out predictions all the time, and they are consistently, consistently wrong because they underestimate how fast the change is coming. Okay. I mean, it's almost comical. They're like, each year, they're like, okay, we're going to readjust this year to say it's coming faster, and then it's not fast enough. And then the next year, they say, okay, we're going to readjust to say it's coming faster, and then it's clearly not coming fast enough. And this just happens like year after year for 15 years that like it keeps coming faster than they think it's going to. Um, so it's again, it's a little hard to predict, right? Because right. it is moving so fast, and it's really just about the economics, right? Um, electric vehicles are still a very small part of the market, but right. they're growing fast. And for the obvious reason that when you're driving an electric vehicle, depending on a variety of 
conditions in a particular vehicle. But you can be looking at something like spending a roughly uh, two cents per mile you want to travel versus about nine cents per mile in a typical gas engine, right? So you're talking about at least half as much, maybe a third or a quarter as much to drive your vehicle. And you get all this great performance out of the vehicle as well, all this sort of thing. So yeah. uh, it, the technological advances really make a big difference here and uh, do drive that. So in terms of oil, uh, you know, GM has now committed that their entire line is going to be all electric. That's their goal. Um, it's is, there a time, is there a time frame on that? Yeah, you know, I don't remember if they put a time frame. It's certainly a ways out. They know they've got some things to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the rest of society has to build up some infrastructure before the world's really ready for that. Right. But, um, but people are working on it. And it's coming, uh, again, I think quicker than most people realize. So, so that's big. And then, you know, in terms of gas, for a long time, many of us, myself included, we're talking about natural gas is the great alternative. You know, it's like, great, it's cheaper than coal. It's, you know, it's cleaner. It's great in all these ways. Um, but what's true is it's getting harder to extract natural gas. We're, we're paying bigger and bigger um, sort of social prices for, for extracting it. And it's, it's stopped being, being economical compared to renewables again. So that's starting to shift as well. The other thing that's really big around this is there's more and more evidence coming out about the health impacts, right? So you get methane leakage, which has implications for uh, on a wider social scale, but just inside a house, the uh, you know John Hopkins had already started warning people that the uh, people who have asthma, for example, to replace their gas stoves because the gas stove can actually be a uh, contributor to asthma attacks. And wow. in, if you don't have a properly you know hooded, you know obviously if you're venting things properly, that makes a big difference. But most houses aren't, even if they have the vent, <laughs> so you, right? And they found that the amount of uh, nitrous oxide coming up is. Uh, just from turning on your gas stove is more than what the EPA allows for outdoor air quality. But it's inside our houses. Now, I've always cooked with gas. I've always been a fan. I've always been like, I would never want an electric stove. I want a gas stove. It's the great way to go. Um, but again, there's been technological improvements, right? So you now have induction cooking, which, you know, big chefs, uh, you know, uh, you know, in these like uh, cooking competitions, this sort of thing. Love it because it does, it's better for all the reasons that gas was better. It's, you have more control. It's more precise. It's actually safer, not only in terms of air quality, but much less burn potential uh, than you get in any of these other things. And, uh, and it's just it's being possible. So this is all driving this other change, right, which is an increasing change towards houses being all electric. Okay. Right? Air source heat pumps. We've got induction stoves. And you remove the health risk. And then it gets actually a simpler utility model. They're producing renewable energy but electrically. We're using cleaner energy inside the house. And the all-electric house, I think, is definitely coming on faster than most people realize as well. So, Jacob, this is fascinating. I have uh, one question, then a quick follow-up. But the uh, So in your uh, bio here, it says the local governments, you're helping the local governments take action faster. What's that mean? And then I got to think they're going to get involved in some capacity they, yeah. you know, worldwide. Yeah, well, like I said, that's what we're seeing is that they're struggling with the, the effects already of extreme weather events, right? Um, and it's having a real impact. And so cities all over the world are coming together. Over 9,000 cities um, have now joined this thing called the Global Covenant of Mayors. Um, within each major country, we have these sorts of coalitions of cities coming together saying, how do we do this? And, and they're trying to figure out, like, how do we make a more stable uh, situation for our household? How do we improve the housing stock? And how do we make this more affordable for everybody, right? I don't think anyone objects to the idea of having renewable energy or having a, 
uh, you know, cleaner air quality. Like everyone wants that. And how do we make that possible? And that's what cities are really trying to figure out and drive. Um, but there is a space where cities understand that this is ties back to carbon and trying to cut back on the threat of carbon change and, and, uh, and climate change issues. And, um, and so they are stepping forward to figure out how do we drive this and how do we move this forward? But how do we make it work in a way that's going to actually be uh, affordable? For yeah. And, and with the governmental agencies for me, you know, they really stepped in with the green building and enforced a lot of things, you know, that you had to have a certain window or energy efficiency. And, and do you see that, you know, when will that take place where they're really stepping in and enforcing? Yeah, we are seeing things happen there. I mean, I know uh, with a lot of builders I talk to, you know, there's always this desire to um, have things be voluntary versus mandatory, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, I think there's a, there's a, there's a balance here, right? There's, there's a need when government's doing its job well, its its purpose is to make sure that we're watching out for the common good collectively, right? And to set minimum standards in place for things without going so overboard that it's, you know, crunching down anyone's ability to do anything, right? And and that's obviously a balance that we debate about in politics all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, and so that's why I'm a fan of things like if you say, look, here's here's what you have to do in terms of delivering the value to people around low energy bills or something like that. But well, we're going to give you complete freedom on how you do that, right? People can come up with their own best practices, their own ways to do that. You leave a lot of room for the market to innovate and to make things cheaper and to do things better. Um, so I'm a much bigger fan of that versus saying, like, you have to put in this exact kind of window or this exact kind of heating system, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, the, where those minimum standards are becomes the big question. And obviously, the place will keep debating, I'm sure. Um, but we are seeing things, we're seeing more and more places moving towards a zero energy standard. I mean, California has essentially put that into place now. And of course, California is California. It's kind of its own, <laughs> its own beast out there. But here's the part that I think is actually exciting about that. Well, first off, to be aware, it's not going to be just California. We know of several other states that are looking at very similar code arrangements now to say, look, we have to set a minimum efficiency standard for all of these things. And it should be very deep. Houses should be uh, more... Um, more self-reliant in terms of their energy usage. But what's going to happen with, with California doing this is people are going to innovate on how to do this cheaper and cheaper. The cost of solar has already dropped, but now we think the cost of how to deal all the processing, all the soft costs of the permitting and the engineering, people are going to innovate ways to make that dramatically cheaper as well. Because we're about to go from there being a few thousand zero energy homes in the country to 100,000 a year, basically. Right. It's wow. going to cause a sea change. And that ripple effect is not just going to affect California. That's going to have, I think, very positive economic impacts across the board uh, for the whole country. And again, who doesn't want a home that is uh, less reliant on an IV coming from? <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to what a great way to look at it. An <laughs> IV system. So one of the questions I wanted to ask is, so with all this going on, what should builders and remodelers be? thinking about with when they're either building homes or doing some major renovation, obviously like maybe just a kitchen or maybe just a bathroom renovation. It, it's yep. not quite as critical, but a kitchen, like you were suggesting some of the health issues there. Uh, but just if, if, if I'm building or doing a major renovation, what should I be thinking about in terms of the future? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two things that really come to mind for me. The first is to recognize that, these things are coming. And I found that the builders who are ahead of the curve, someone ups the code. They're like, I don't care. We're already building so much better than code. No right. sweat on my back. Like, this is fine. And in fact, I'm in a position to lead my local market 
because I'm ready for it. Right. And so it's really a good idea to get ahead of the curve on this stuff. And, and not only because it's strategic, but most builders I know, once they start building this way, they're like, Oh man, now that all my subs get this and we're all doing it right. And we're working towards this common goal. Like I would never go back cause I'm building a better house, you know, and people will buy it. And I love it. So, um, so figure that stuff out now. <laughs> Don't wait for it to be uh, mandated. Um, the other thing, though, is that I, you know, I've talked to builders for years who will say, "Look, I can do all this stuff, but the customer's not asking for it." You know, right. I'll do it when the customer asks for it. And um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say I'm, I'm calling BS on that one. <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times I talk to somebody and they say, "Oh, I want to do this thing," and the builder basically says, "Nah, you don't want to do that." Right. And he's like, no, no, I want to do that. And basically the builder's trying to sell what they have in stock, what's sitting in the truck, or what they um, what their subs know how to do. And they're like, ah, we just haven't gotten our guys up to speed on that. You know, it's, it's kind of complicated. I don't want to deal with it. Right. And, and those are understandable problems that you're trying to solve for, but you're not doing anyone a service at that point, and you're not actually meeting what the customer needs. And, um, and of course, as a builder, you've got an opportunity to educate the consumer on why these things are good for them, why they might want them. They resonate with what people want in terms of health and cleanliness and saving money on their utility bills. And it also usually offers an opportunity to actually upgrade your sale. Like you don't want to just sell the lowest common denominator, like give them what they want and let them pay for it. And it's a great opportunity, but you got to be ready for it, right? You got to be ready to say, yeah, I know how to install an air source heat pump. Yeah, it's a little right. more complicated, but it's going to save you because we're not just going to put in a furnace. We're going to put this in instead of a furnace and an air conditioner. We're going to replace both of them. You've got one system and we're going to make it all work for you and understand the person's needs and, and be ready to deliver that. So while we're just kind of talking about learning that stuff, I mentioned the uh, conference in Wisconsin. They have a lot of great resources there. What yeah. are some other resources if, if some of our people are listening to this and they're going like, yeah, that sounds great, but I haven't seen an ad in the paper for <laughs> how to learn how to put in air source heat pumps, you know? So we're, where do they go? Where do the, where do the contractors go to learn some of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, depending on what they're looking for, there there are great resources out there. Uh, some of them are as simple as um, you know, we Rocky Mountain Institute put out a report last year called the Economics of Zero Energy Homes, where we said, look, you can build. Uh, you know, people often have said like, oh, well, zero energy home, of course, sounds great, but it's going to be too expensive for me. Right. My right. feeling is, um, you know, they're absolutely right. They're way more expensive if you build it wrong. Uh, but they don't have to be massively more expensive or if you're going for a luxury item, right? Like that's fine, but they don't have to be. And so this report was saying, how can you do the most cost optimized? Okay. Home and find and sort of laid out a strategy for here's how you can do it in these different climate zones and, and make that work for you. Um, there are of course great resources out there like, uh, like EBA, right? EBA is doing all of these um, buildings. What, what, what is EBA? Uh, I'm trying to remember now what the acronym stands for. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get it here. Just, oh, it's the Energy and Environmental Building Alliance. Okay. Great resource for really upping your game on the building science work here. The Department of Energy has a program called Zero Energy Ready Homes. It's like everything but the solar panel. And they've got, you know, resources there that are a great way to get caught up. I think those are, those are some really prime times to start. But also reach out to the manufacturers. You know, there's there's only a handful that are really doing high quality air source heat pumps at this point. Okay. They would love for more builders to know how to use them, right? right. Uh, it's to yeah. everyone. So, yeah, that sounds great. We're hoping to have a manufacturer on the podcast, maybe not of that that uh, 
uh, product, but just to see how, how do people work with manufacturers to produce better product and, and yeah. so forth like that. So one of the things that's kind of as we're wrapping this up, Jacob, the, uh, the idea of not in my backyard uh, really shines out because like here in Rhode Island, we've got uh, companies that want to put wind farms offshore. And then there's a, a lot of people that are going like, if I can see them, I don't want to see them. Yep. And then the other thing that plays into this, you were mentioning the cities and I was started thinking about economics, right? Yep. People who have a lot of money are saying, don't put it here. So what happens then? It, it ends up in the backyard of people who can't, uh, you know, exercise that much authority because they don't make that much money. So how do we get the world around us to say, you know what? It's worth it for me to see that wind turbine because it's, it's, uh, it's not burning up carbon. How, how do we move there? Well, I mean, some of it's just a change in the sex. I got to say, personally, I love them. I think they're gorgeous. <laughs> I think they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I, I love, I'd love to have a turbine in the backyard. Yeah. But anyway. Um, and, and, and I partly, you know, I sometimes think, like, like, whatever happened, like, when America had some guts about being in this together, you know? I feel like back in the mid-20th century, like, we really came together often to say, look, we, we're going to do what's good for the country, and we're all going to band together to make this sort of thing happen. And I think and, – and recognize that that's not only good – like a sacrifice sort of thing, like uh, going to World War II, but it's also good for the for the country, right? I mean, right. The, the economy exploded after World War II, um, and and I think we're missing the fact that there's an opportunity to do something similar here as well, right? The the economy is changing; change is scary, of course, right, right. But this is a glorious opportunity for us to come together around. But we've all got to be in it together, you know, to, to move it forward. Yeah. Um, so I, I would love to just sort of engage some of that spirit around a little bit more. But, you know, the thing is that the NIMBY thing I think is really interesting because um, what I would say is what is you're, – you're worried about the thing you're, that you don't want to see. I'd be more worried about the thing you can't see. <laughs> In every one of our backyards right now, we have these giant gas pipelines that are leaking like mad. I mean, and that's just because the infrastructure is old, right? We mostly right. put infrastructure decades ago. It's falling apart. It's failing. We're seeing more explosions like uh, in, you know, housing developments, these sorts of things happening. Um, that's not to place blame on anybody. It's just it's what happens. This stuff gets old. And we're now talking about spending upwards of 15 to 20 billion dollars a year to be upgrading and installing new gas infrastructure. We could be just diverting that instead into making our homes work better with clean energy and be in a much better space. So um, I'd be I'd be worried about the what's in your backyard that you can't see already. Well, Jacob, man, you have blown my mind. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> this has been so cool. And like I said before, it, it's just not part of my everyday thinking. And I, I really, really appreciate you putting some uh, thoughts out there and helping me. And I hope the listeners, as they hear this, to kind of get a better grasp on, wow, not only do we need to change, but it's not really that difficult. And, and let's make and, and then what's out there on the horizon. So I really thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having the time. It's a great conversation. Really fun talking with you guys and uh, keep up the good work. I mean, we're all just trying to figure this out and, yeah. and find the prize, right? There's all economic opportunity here. So right. thank you. Absolutely. We'll do this again sometime soon, Jacob. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Tim. Ciao. Tim, that was absolutely fantastic. Didn't know what to expect, but that was, that was really awesome. Really great information. 
Yeah, I'm sure the listeners are going to be aware that we went a little longer than we normally do with these podcasts. But you know what? I said, blow my mind. I'm just sitting here listening to him talk. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of stuff about a lot of things and maybe things he doesn't know about. But boy, oh boy, there's just so much information there. Uh, I really encourage uh, listeners to, to check into the, the Rocky Mountain Institute yeah. there and just see what they have to offer. Uh, there's got to be some amazing resources. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, I thought we cut it a bit short, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <It's not going laughs> and, you know, Tim, I also think that he reinforced it isn't what it is. You don't have to go the same route and we can make a big, big difference by by making changes uh, on a on a big, big scale coming together. Yeah. yeah. And I really liked his especially there at the end when we were talking yes. about everybody joining together and not not becoming like us against them. And, you know, not in my backyard. That, that's one of the things that really concerns me is just this rebelliousness, I guess. And. Uh, but everybody going like at some point in time, we got to get we together do it. And, and figure out a way to make this work better for everybody. The alternative is probably not acceptable. You know, we've got to come together as a collective. So uh, once again, we would like to thank Jacob Corviday for joining us today. And we want to thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. And remember, even though it might not have seemed like it today, <laughs> we're helping the bottom line through production training. This has been another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast-track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.